we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and ask you to guide and lead as we look at this section in Ezekiel and that you will show us what you would have us to see from it in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 22. Exodus. All right. Ezekiel. How about Ezekiel? I think I'd like to go to Exodus, but that's okay. We'll stay in Ezekiel. It seems how that's Ezekiel tonight. <laughs> Exodus is a good book. I like it. <laughs> Eh, we've done it already. It's time to go. go time to do Ezekiel. Uh, verse one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, "Now, you son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yea, you shall show her all her abominations. Then say you, Thus says the Lord God: The city sheds blood in the midst of it, that her time may come and make idols against her to defile herself. You are become guilty of it in your blood that you have shed." You have defiled yourself in your in your idols, and you have made which you have made, and you have caused your days to draw near, and are come even unto your years. Therefore I have made you a reproach unto the heathen and a mocking to all countries. Those that be near and those that be far from you shall mock you, which are infamous and vexed. Behold the princes of Israel, every one were in you to their power to shed blood. In you they have set light by father and mother in the midst of you have they dealt by oppression with the stranger in you they have vexed the fatherless and the widow you have despised my holy things and have profaned my sabbath in you are men that carry tales to shed blood and in you they eat upon the mountains in the midst of you they commit lewdness in you they have dis discovered their father's nakedness and in you they have humbled her that was set apart for pollution in you and one has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife and another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law and another in you has humbled his sister his father's daughter i'm going to stop there because there's a lot here we probably won't get to that far so um, ezekiel is now told to make a prophecy against jerusalem and again remember the period of time that we're at Part of, of Israel, uh, Israel or Judah has already gone into captivity in Babylon. More are getting ready to go into captivity of Babylon. Ezekiel is already in Babylon. Daniel's in Babylon. Jeremiah is in Israel at this time prophesying the same things that Ezekiel's prophesying that judgment is coming. Right? And God is now having him give a message to Jerusalem. And you've got to think about how, how hard this is going to be, even for Ezekiel. Jerusalem, for the Israelite, is a special, special city. Even to this day, for the Israelite, Jerusalem is a special place. And for, for the most part, most of the Christians that I've ever met who've been to Jerusalem say it's awe-inspiring. It, it has a special feel there because it is really God's city. David named it that way. And God said, I'm going to dwell there. And he still has a presence there. And Isaiah is told to make a judgment against them. Uh, and this is going to be something very hard for him because he has a love for this city and he doesn't want to see it fall and destroy. And so it says, you will judge, you will judge the bloody city. You know, so this is something pretty strong. He says, it's empty, vain, it's, it's dead. It's causing death. Uh, 
kind of like many of our cities in our world today, all across the world, even in America. Uh, cities are becoming a very deadly place to go in, the, and the sin is abounding in cities and becoming abounding in smaller and smaller towns because we're getting further and further away from God. And the further we people draw from God, the more sin abounds and the more people do what's right in their own eyes. That was the, the abomination before the flood in Noah's day, that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And you know, we're getting very close to that period now. People are doing what is right in their own eyes, and you hear it. You know, you hear it from people. Well, you can't judge me. That's what you think, or that's what, you know, I have no problem with it. You know, don't, don't try to put your rules on me. And God is saying this was Israel's place right now. After all this time, they drifted further and further away from God and was worshiping idols. And uh, I was just reading in uh, uh, Chronicles today for my reading how in Solomon's day, they were, they were worshiping Moloch, Astaroth, all these gods, uh, Gamesh, all these gods of that area, they were worshiping everybody but God. And God's commitment to Solomon is because you have done this, the kingdom is, most of the kingdom is going to be taken out of your hands. You're going to lose, you know, ten twelfths of the kingdom is going to be torn from your hands. I will give you your, your city, Judah, because it's, I promised David, and I will give you one other because of Jerusalem's sake. So they ended up with two tribes, which these are the two tribes that are getting ready to go into captivity because the ten northern tribes have already gone into captivity before this period. So we see, he says, you're going to judge the bloody city and you shall show her all her abominations. This is not an easy task for Ezekiel or Jeremiah who's in Israel because it is just like our day. When you tell somebody that they're a sinner doing something wrong, they basically say, who are you to be telling us this? Who, what, by what rules are you <laughs> judging us? Now, in these guys' case, they're talking to the Israelites. The Israelites know what laws they're supposed to be following. And they haven't followed them for many years, but they know the laws that they are supposed to follow. But they're doing what's right in their own eyes, and it's not an easy message. They're going to say, you're sinning, and they're going to say, says who? And he's going to say, says the Lord. And they're going to, well, who's the Lord? He hasn't, he hasn't done anything for us. Um, and in verse 3 it says, Then you shall say, Thus says the Lord, The city sheds blood in the midst of it in her time, that her time may come and make idols against her to defile herself. He says, You're shedding blood and you're making idols. Creating idols. And this has been the problem in both the northern and southern kingdom from the time that they, from Solomon's time on. During David's time, they pretty much followed God as a nation. Solomon's early years, they followed God. As Solomon multiplied wives unto himself, and remember he had over 300 wives and 700 concubines, and it says that his wives turned his heart from God. And you can pretty much picture it. He's building a temple. He's got all these things. And he, he really did apparently love most of these women. There were a few political um, marriages, but Solomon seems to have had a great desire to love women, and he really did seem to love them. And it says his wives turned his heart. And you can picture it. 
Solomon, you built this great big temple for your God, and I don't have any place to worship my God. Do you really love me? I really want to have a place to worship my God. And then he would build a temple for them. And it says he built the temples for his wives, for their gods. And, and then you could picture the next day, well, Solomon, you never come to my temple. You know, you're always going to your temple. And the next thing you know, he is worshiping in their temples and turning his heart away from God. And in the end of his life, his God is judging, will judge him for his turning away. And it appears that in Ecclesiastes, he came, at the end of his life, that he came back to God, realizing that he had wasted all these years. But it's, it's a very obvious thing. We always say, don't be unequally yoked. is very important because it is much easier for the bad to drag down the good than the good to bring up the bad. And I have seen it so many times over my life that somebody, somebody will say, well, I really think God wants me to marry this person. I'm sure that I can get them converted to God. And you'll tell them, don't do it. It's not what God's saying. It's against God's word. Don't do it. And they get married. And sure enough, within a couple months, you don't see this person in church anymore. And I know how that starts. You know, it, you know they're, they're okay with you going to church because that's who you are. And then, then they want to go, okay, you know, it's a beautiful day this next uh, this next Sunday is supposed to be a beautiful day. Let's go. Let's go to the beach. Oh yeah, I can miss one. I can miss one, or or they'll tell you you could miss one, and you miss that one, and the next month you miss another one, and then it's like okay, well let's go camping this next weekend as well, and now you're missing two, and before you know it, you're not going to church at all, and it really does work in that way in their lives, and. It is so insidious the way that people can be drawn down. Little compromises here, little compromises there. Before long, you're not walking with God. You're not following him. And you're wondering five years later, why, you know, what happened? Why am I not going to church anymore? Why am I not reading my Bible anymore? Why am I not praying? And it's so easy to get there. And it happens so subtly. And we can come back. We repent. We come back. But... Sometimes people never come back from it. And this is what he says. You've created idols. You're following everything but me. And he says in verse 4, You have become guilty in your blood. You have shed blood. You have defiled yourself with your idols, which you have made. And you have caused your days to draw near. And you are even unto your years. Therefore I have made you a reproach unto the heathen and a mocking to all the countries. He says, You have become guilty how easy it is to become guilty and not repent. When we're close to God, we make our, we sin and we will always sin, but you know his children are convicted of their sins and will repent. If you can sin and not repent, there's something wrong with your relationship with God. You either have really isolated it to nothing or you don't have a relationship with God, one or the other. And if you can sin and not be convicted of your sin, you really need to take stock in what's going on. Now, it is possible to keep sinning so much that you sear your conscience and, and no longer feel it, feel it. But that's not the way a child of God should be. The child of God should feel that conviction of their sin, not condemnation. Now, condemnation makes you pull away from God. Conviction says God is God trying to say, you need to repent and turn back to me. That's what happened to the prodigal son when he's feeding the pigs and all of a sudden it says he came to his senses. The conviction hit him and it's like, what am I doing here? 
My, my father's servants are doing better than this. It's going to take time. Well, conviction hits you from the very beginning. The more you do a sin, the harder the conviction is to see. Because uh, if you're not being... Con I cannot sin without God slapping me upside the head. Now, I can ignore it and keep, keep ignoring it, and, and it gets harder and harder to hear until God finally takes a two-by-four upside my head and says, pay attention to me. And if I don't listen then, then who knows what he's going to do. I, I don't like to go beyond the two-by-four, and I try not even to go that far anymore. Uh, because I've seen people who have been not listening to God and have their whole life turned upside down because they're not listening to him and he's trying to get hold of their attention. But yes, he starts with, you know, talking to you. And then he'll whisper at you if you're really trying to, and then he'll give you a couple more yells at you, and then he'll do some things. If you're his child, he will not let you continue in sin. Period. Uh, you will know that you're doing wrong. And you can harden your heart. I've, <laughs> I've done it. Believe me, I've been there. I've done it where I've hardened my heart and said, God, I just, I'm just going to keep doing this. You know, nothing really, you know, most people would look at it and say, it's, well, it's nothing really serious, but where I was at in my life, it was a serious sin. God was saying, don't do it, and I kept doing it. You know, was it an earth-shattering, you know, destructive sin by most people's standards? No. But you know, the more you walk with God, the more that your sins will be non-earth-shattering because you've wiped out most of the earth shattering. You know, you're not drinking and drugging and, and going out and committing fornication and adultery. It's the mind sins and the, you know, doing things that God says not to do. And those are just as awful to God as those people that are out there using drugs and alcohol and all these other problems that they have because God says you're supposed to know better. You should know better. It's just like what you would allow a, a child to do with just a little slap on the wrist. If your teenager's doing it, you're going, hey, you should really know better. You're not supposed to do this. And you, your discipline on them are going to be a lot harder. Your standards are going to be a lot harder you know, because they should know better. You know, and if they're still doing it when they're adults, it's like, hold it. What's, what's, what's wrong with you? Haven't you grown up yet? And that's where we are with Christ. As we grow in him, what we might have been able to get away with as a baby Christian God saying, uh-uh, you're, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be thinking these thoughts. You, you need to be grown up. Your, your standard is higher. Your, 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 the standard is much higher. And I've shared with this people, when I was running restaurants, I kept raising the standard in the restaurant every, time, every year, every, you know, well, not even every year, but over a period of time, the standard would go up. And it would be somebody who was a really good worker a year ago, if they didn't raise with the store standard, might just be an average worker because we'd move the standard up saying, we're, we're going to do better. And I kept challenging people to do better. This is growing up in Christ. God is setting a higher standard. He goes, okay, when you were a child, this was okay. You're no longer a child. I want you up here. And God says, Okay, no, 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 you can't do that anymore. You're no longer a child. And Paul said that. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I acted like a child. But now I have matured and grown. And what he was saying is, I can't do the same things I used to do. And this is where God will always see. And he says, this city has defiled itself with their idols. 
And we've talked about this. When they were worshiping idols, whatever idol they were worshiping, each idol glorified some sin. And the way you worshiped the idol was you relished that sin. Okay? If it was Astoreth, the fertility goddess, then the way you worshiped was you had orgies in the temples, you know, and that was the way you worshiped the fertility god. Uh, If you were doing Moloch, the god of prosperity and business, you sacrificed your children and your family to Moloch because you're saying, I want this, the gift that you're going to give us, the prosperity and business for, and I'm willing to give you my children for it. And this is true of every single idol. If you can think of a sin that God has said is a sin, there is a God out there that is centered on that sin, and the way you worship them was to commit and those, sec- those, those, those sins in your act of worship. If you were worshiping the God of the thieves, then you would go steal things and bring them into the temple as your sacrifice to that God. And it says, you have defiled yourself with your worship of your idols. Bad enough that it was just idols. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So as far as God was concerned, they were committing adultery, spiritual adultery, because they weren't worshiping him. They were worshiping these other gods. And then to worship these gods, they were committing sins that God declared were sins. Every idol that I know of is based upon the worship of some sin, the raising up of some sin. Now, is there maybe some sin idol out there that's not? I don't know. But even Buddha, Buddha is based on knowledge being all important. And how do you worship him? You have just emptied yourself of your mind and you have, you've been able to think yourself into the perfect, perfect realm. And that is the ultimate. Actually, it was, the worship of it is the opposite of thought. It's to empty your mind of all thoughts. Okay, which is kind of a bizarre thing. You worship the God of thoughts by emptying your mind of all thoughts. When you empty your mind of all thoughts, you open your mind to the demonic world. And this is my problem with most meditation from the Zen philosophy. You, you get yourself thinking about nothing and emptying your mind and emptying all the guards of your mind and the demonic world has straight shot to getting into your mind because you've emptied all your defenses. Satan loves that because he just comes in and influences or and or uh, fills the person in and into it the empty house we've emptied my mind and it makes it an easy which is why when God talks about meditation it is complete thought on his word it's not empty in your mind it is to completely mull and and masticate his word and and make it real to you thinking completely about him not empty in my mind but totally thinking on him and that's meditation for a Christian and kind of an interesting thing that the two words for meditation in in either the false religions or Christianity are exactly opposite empty or filled filled. prayer is even the same for prayer we're having communion with God as a Christian most every other religion is chanting your chants in vain repetition of of words to be able to pray and we see this over and over in you know, the Zen philosophies. You chant your mantras. If you're a Muslim, you do all your ceremonies and you pray ritualistic prayers 
five times a day to hope that you're pleasing the deities. And God says, don't pray like the heathen. Don't do vain repetition. So it's very important for us to understand we are in a communion. This one is what makes Christianity different from every religion out there because, number one, I do not claim Christianity as a religion. It is a relationship with the God of the universe. Religion is following a bunch of rules trying to please a deity. And the sad thing is there's many churches that claim to be Christian who are just religion. Follow these rules and you're going to be okay. You pray every morning, you read your Bible every morning, you go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night, and if you do all these things and you try to be good, you're going to be okay. That is not Christianity. Now, are those good things in Christianity? Absolutely. Should we maybe get to them? Yes, we are created unto good works, and our goal is to grow up into good works, but the good works aren't done so that we please God. The good works are because he's, we love him so much that we say, God, I want to do the things you want me to do. And lift him up and, and be righteous and holy. And as he changes who we are and we become more like him, good works are produced out of us not because I'm doing them even, but he's crucified my flesh and he's filling my spirit up and he's making me who he is and I become and do what he would want me to do because I'm becoming more like him. The scriptures tell us that we will become like what we worship. All right? If we're worshiping God, truly worshiping him, we will become like him. If we're, if we're worshiping Astoroth or sex in this life, we will fill our life with those activities. If I'm worshiping at Moloch, the, the god of prosperity and business, I will devote my whole life to business. And maybe not physically sacrifice my kids, but sacrifice my time with my wife and my kids because I've got to do what's right. I've got to do what's good for business. When I was a workaholic in my earlier days, I did just that. I, and I did not see my young oldest son for about the first 12 years of his life. I mean, yeah, I saw him at bed. I saw him once in a while, but you know, I really never saw him. I was at work. And if you'd asked me, I would have told you I was doing what I had to do to put food on the table and keep, keep everybody, you know, keep my wife from having to work and had lots of good reasons for doing what I was doing, but I was sacrificing my family and I did not have to be at work the 80 hours a week, you know, 60, 80 hours a week I was doing. I was worshiping other than God, and it had its ramifications down the road when I pulled away from church for a period of time. So we have to be careful. What are we worshiping? Now, is work wrong? No, we have to work. You know, especially if you're a, a, a husband, you're supposed to work enough to support your family. But there is that point where you're working beyond what needs to be done. And most everything that we can turn into a sin can also be a good thing. You know, can we can we take time off and go camping with our family and miss a Sunday service sometime? Yes, if that's what God wants you to do, it's good to invest in your family. But if you're doing it every single month or once a quarter, maybe you're getting too far, maybe not. That's between you and God. But if it starts becoming every every other week, every third week, you're probably not <laughs> where God wants you to be. Well, it could be either way. I mean, it, 
it can lead too far the other direction. And I've taken times where I've taken my kids when they were young and gone camping or something. Uh, if I just going to the beach, that was always done on Saturday. But, but you know, again, there's this point where we turn it so far around that it becomes sinful because it takes the place of God. Anything that takes the place of God becomes sin. So he goes on in verse 4 and he says, You have caused your days to draw near. You are come even unto your years. He's basically saying your judgment's coming. Your life is coming to an end. All right? And we've talked about this many times. Sin has consequences. And if you continue to sin and you're his child, the ultimate consequence is that he'll take you home early. And this is what he's saying. You, day, you've, you have caused. You have caused your days to come to an end. All right? For many of them, this was they were going to go into slavery. But during this captivity, many of them died. When the city was taken, a lot of the population of Jerusalem died. And many of them were taken into captivity. And life became very hard for them. Those that were left, life became very hard for. Why? God says it's because of your sin. You have caused your days to come to an end. And people have asked me many times, you know, will God take a person home early if they sin? God says so. Many places he says so. We can shorten our days through our sins. Now, God can also redeem our days when we come to him and we repent and we come back to him. He can redeem the years of the canker worms of Eden, he says. And he can say, okay, you've repented. All right, we bring you back. And the great news is, is to watch God bless you when you do repent. And you know the good news for it, and I've brought this up so many times, when you fall and you repent, God doesn't tell you, well, you were so bad, you've got to go back to the bottom of the ladder and start all over and prove yourself. And the prodigal son is the greatest example. He comes back, Father, I have sinned. I don't even deserve to be called your son anymore. Just make me a servant. And the father says, you're my child. You're, you know, get the robe out. Put the ring on his finger. You know, have a party. My son who is dead is now back. That is the way God treats us when we fall and we repent. He says, you've repented. Here's my grace. You're not going down to the bottom of the ladder. I'm putting you right back where you fell from. Why does he do that? Because it was only grace that put us at the top wherever we were on the ladder in the first place. It was by his grace that we were two rungs up, 20 rungs up, you know, whatever, however many rungs up. And it was only by his grace in the first place. And when we repent and come back to him, he says, here's my grace. Back to where my grace put you in the first place. You know, we need to grab hold of that as a Christian. If you don't feel that way, I what I will say is what I've said every time. Our feelings lie to us all the time. I don't feel forgiven. Doesn't matter what I feel. God says I'm forgiven. God says I am restoring you back because you have repented. God, I don't deserve it doesn't matter what I feel or what I think God has restored me now I can wallow in my feelings and not not accept what God says that I am or I can accept what he says I am 
and walk in the victory of who he says I am. Well, um, I would say it's sinful because you're not trusting God, but it's definitely, definitely unfortunate because you are living so far beneath what you should be living because you will not accept God's truth. So in one sense, yeah, I would say it would be sinful because you're not, you're not willing to. And this is where when God says it, we need to learn to believe it and walk in what he says no matter what I feel. Uh, when, I was, when I was doing my first discipleship class, there was a picture of a, a train, a coal car, and a caboose. The train was God's, God's uh, truth, the engine. The coal car was the word of God, and the caboose was feelings. Okay? And it says, never put the caboose in front of the, of the train and live within the, your feelings. Okay? So most of us oftentimes put feelings in front of the word of truth and say, God, I just don't feel like I'm forgiven. I don't feel like I can do what you've asked me to do. I don't feel like you've restored me. <clears throat> and God's saying, haven't you read the word? Haven't you understood truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. We come into creation into our salvation through Jesus Christ as the way, we get held into our, cre our walk with him by the truth. And he makes us alive, which is our feelings. Okay? The more we can learn to trust in truth, the better off we're going to be. And as you mature, you're willing to get to the place where you start believing that the truth is truth whether you believe it or not. And you just start living in the truth. And, I, and if people have asked me, well, how do you do it? And I could just, you do it. <laughs> the more you do it, the easier it gets to be. And then when you finally get there, you go, why did it take me so long to get here? You know, how do I surrender my life over to God? You do it. <laughs> you know, and I've shared with people, if you had the police outside your door saying, come out with your hands up, you have a choice. You can come out with your hands up well, you can say, well, gee, I wonder why the police are outside yelling at me to come out with my hands up. I think I'm just going to sit in here for a while and listen to them yell at me and maybe shoot tear gas into the house and, you know, and finally bust down my door and, and drag me out you know, with handcuffs or I can come out and do what I'm told. Second thing with God, he said, gives us truth and we have a choice. We can believe what he says and act on what he says is true. Or we can sit there and wonder, God, I wonder if what you said is true. I don't, really don't know if it's uh, something I need to live in. God, are you really going to? You know, I just don't feel it, God. <laughs> you know, and part of the world's motto is, if it feels good, do it. And that leads you into all kinds of sin and stupid ideas. And God's saying, I said it, do it. Dr. McGee on Through the Bible would say, where you and the Bible disagree, God's right. Okay, and we just need to learn if the Bible says it, it's true. Doesn't matter whether I believe it, doesn't matter whether I feel it, it is true. And if I learn to start acting on the truth of the Word of God, my feelings will start to follow what God does. And as I lead my feelings into truth, my life will change. 
God, you say they're not to be unequally yoked. I really, I really love this person. I really think that they, I can convert them, but I'm going to obey you rather than my feelings. God, I really think it wouldn't be that bad if I, I had this one night stand. You know, I, I, I really had a bad time with my spouse. You know, we haven't, we haven't been intimate for, for a year or more. You know, God, you know, there, I had needs. It, it, you know, you know, you'll, everybody will understand. God says that for, adultery is a sin. Don't do it. I mean, when we do sin, we justify it. God, you are, you'll understand, God. You know, if I told the truth in this situation, you know, these people are all going to be in trouble. And God says, do not bear false witness. God, you know that, you know, if I did this, you know, it's, you know, we all know how it is. We do it all the time. We take our feelings and say, my needs are really important. My needs, I, I feel that I really need to do this and God will understand. Yeah, he'll understand as he blisters our butt with his belt and <laughs> says, you've got troubles and consequences to pay. And here it is, it says, your days have drawn near. And he goes, I have made you a reproach unto the heathen and a mocking to the countries. God's people. The whole reason that he didn't discipline them earlier goes all the way back to when Moses was going and God says, I'm just going to destroy all these people, Moses, and I'm going to restart with you. And Moses goes, oh God, you can't do that because everybody will hear and, you're, and will say that they were strong enough to take him out of Egypt, but he wasn't strong enough to keep his word and bring him into their land. God kept him as long as he did because of his promises, because of his name being taken and being uh, destroyed. The reason he is as gracious with us when we live in sin is because we say we're Christians and if he totally takes us out, people will say, well, their, their, their God wasn't strong enough to keep them, wasn't strong enough to protect them. And he's gracious with us a lot longer than we deserve because of his name, his reputation. Nothing to do with us. So he says, I've made you a reproach or a taunt or a disgrace and a mocking. Everybody's deriding them. You know, what kind of, what kind of God do you guys follow? Your God, your God has taken you out. And you think about this, when they got into the land, it was kind of interesting if you remember when they go into the, into the land, they send the spies in before they enter into the promised land. And Rahab's testimony of, I want to follow your God because everybody has heard of your God and what he had done to Israel, uh, to Egypt. 40 years earlier, and to these other nations that they had just wiped out a year or two earlier, and they are afraid of your God. Their reputation, even though they've been bad and not prote protecting, they go, we know your God. We know your God. He is awfully strong, and I want to follow your God. Please allow me to follow your God. And she protected them and was delivered and became part of the line of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they go, we know your God. Oftentimes, that's been the testimony. Gideon, told to go fight the battle, and he's all afraid, and God goes, okay, you go sneak into the camp and hear what, you're, hear what they're saying. Sneaks into the camp, and he listens to two people. Well, yeah, I had a dream, and they go, the God of Gideon is coming, and he's going to destroy us all. You know, and Gideon's like, oh, okay. And leaves knowing that they're in fear of him and his 300 men. You know, uh, over and over again, God allowed people to see that God was powerful. You know, uh, jo uh, jo 
Joas, I believe it was, cities surrounded and besieged. They're eating an ox head going for 10 shekels of gold. Just the head, mostly bone, you know, if you've ever looked at the skull of anything, it's mostly bone. And they're going, the prophet goes, tomorrow everybody's going to have more food than you can imagine needing. And they go, yeah, right. God kills 100,000 men, a little over 100,000 men with one night with one angel and gives them all the food they want the next day. You know, God's power, his name being lifted up. And he says, if you're going to turn against me, you're going to be a mocking. You're going to be rejected. And how many times have you seen a Christian leader especially fall from, from grace and sin and become a taunt, a mock? You know, wow, look at that guy. He thought he was all that, you know, and all of a sudden he's, you know, off. And mostly of the time it's through adultery that they get wrapped up in because they think they're, number one, they're putting all their time in the church. They get away from their wife. Or the, and the next thing you know, they're in an affair. And it happens. And God says, I'm going to judge it. You're going to be made a mocking. People are going to deride you. And God, with his name, can get over it. Does, he holds off long because he doesn't want it to happen. He's hoping people will repent. But if they won't, he'll judge. And they, there'll be that derision. Because those that will be near and those that will be far from you shall mock you. You are infamous and much vexed. Infamous. <laughs> you know, the idea of you are so bad that people remember your name. There's certain people in history that have been so bad that people remember their name. Hitler you know, is one of those. You know, he was so bad that people will never forget his name. Rasmussen, for those who are history buffs, are going to you know, know that's a name that was a bad person in, in the power behind people. Uh, nobody names their kids Nimrod because he was a bad and wicked king. And that was many years ago. You don't, you don't find any girls named Jezebel very often because that was a wicked queen. You know, there's just certain names that are associated with infamous people that you're not going to hear and you use their names because they're attached to that infamous person. And he says, you, because of your sin, have become infamous. And really, for those who study Israel's time, it was an infamous period of time when they're going to go into captivity for 70 years because of their sin, not repenting. Verse 6 says, Behold the princes of Israel, every one were in, in you to their power to shed blood. So he says the princes are killing people without cause. Okay, And this is why you've got to put this without cause because the princes have the power of the sword, but they were to use it in proper judgment. If somebody committed a capital offense, the government was to go in and say, you're guilty of the covenant, capital offense. We've got our, we've got our three witnesses that that's required and kill them. But oftentimes in, this, in their time, they would just kill people because they wanted their property. All right? Uh, they wanted their money, they wanted their property, so they would execute them and take their property. Jezebel did this for Ahab. The, the man wouldn't sell him his farm, his vineyard. And Ahab's all whining to his wife, you know, this guy won't sell me his land and I want it. And she goes, well, are you the king or not? You know, and she hires witnesses against him and 
convicts him, has him killed, and when the queen has everything killed, nobody wanted the land. They didn't try to keep the land from the, the king because they know if you did, you're next. And she goes, there you go, go get the land now. You know, she's earlier than this period of time, but she was one that set the pattern for them. And it says, your princes aren't being honorable. They're not being righteous. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They want it, they kill. And they steal. And they just take. It says, be, in you have they set light by father and mother. In the midst of you have they dealt oppression with the stranger. And they have vexed the fatherless and the widow. Set light, dealt with contempt, treated with contempt. They've treated father and mother with contempt. You know, God says, honor your father and mother, and they would say, hey, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I, I'm going to take care of myself. Mom and dad, you need, you need a new house. You need, you, need, you need some stuff. Forget it. You know, I'm not giving you anything. Kind of like today's world. You know, Mom and dad, uh, you know, I don't want my kids. You go raise them, and I'm going to go have fun while you raise, my, raise your grandkids. I have total contempt for you, and I'm not even going to pay for the food they're eating or, or the electric and the water extra they use. You just take care of my kids. Very contemptuous of their parents. Mom and dad, you need help? Uh-uh. Uh, you know, we've got our big house. We can barely keep this. We need our three cars in the, in the garage, and we need our quads so we can play, and we need our RV. Don't, don't even be bothering us for, for paying your electric bill or you need a little bit of food. Not honoring, contempt of their parents. And he says, they have... And in the midst of you, they have dealt with oppression with the stranger. He says, with the aliens, they were to give them honor. They were to treat them kindly. You have vexed the fatherless and the widows. The weakest and the poorest you are taken advantage of. God told them the way to take care of the poor. They were to not harvest their entire field. They were to leave the corners of their fields unharvested. Any wheat, any grain or stuff that dropped onto the ground was to be left. The poor were to go out and be able to work for their food. They could go out to the fields and pick up the stuff that was dropped or go out to the corners of the fields and take and harvest those. Those who barely honored God barely left anything on the, barely left the corners. Those who truly honored God and were helping the poor could leave huge sections of the corners for the, for the poor, saying, I'm gonna be very honorable and let, let them. But God's plan was always for the poor to do something for their keep. Okay? Not the way we do it in our day. Here, here's your check. We're taking it from the rich and we're giving it to the poor. And we want to help people. We want to help people. That's why we have our little food bank that we have here. Is if people truly need help, we want to help them with food. We're such a small church, we can't do much beyond that, but we try to help. And it says, you have vexed your fathers and your fatherless and the widows. It says, you have despised my, despised my holy things and you profaned my Sabbaths. So anything that God said was holy, they made common. And he says, you've despised my Sabbaths. Now in this Sabbath, he is not just talking about the Sabbath day, the every seven days. The Jews have always been pretty good at keeping the Sabbath day. Every seventh day, they've been pretty good about not working. And it's one of the things that all through the Middle Ages, the Jews were considered lazy people because they took one day off every week when everybody else was working seven. They, they would say, well, you, you guys are so lazy, you have to have a, a vacation every week? 
and they're going, this is what our God demands. The Sabbaths he's talking about are what they're being judged for. Every seventh year, they were not to plant their fields and live on the surplus from the year before and whatever grew wild on the seventh year. And God says, you did not give me 70 Sabbath, uh, uh, seven, uh, 700 years of Sabbath, you now owe me 70 years of Sabbath. And that's why they went into captivity for 70 years. Uh, for 490 years, excuse me, not 700, but 490 years, they had not kept the Sabbath year. And God says, you haven't done what I've told you. Now I'm gonna, your land is going to have its Sabbath. You did not let your land rest every seven years, and now it's going to rest for 70 years. And uh, that's what he's saying. You profaned my Sabbath. And it's very important for us to be able to look at our life and say, God, what is important? What am I needing? Where am I and what do I need to, to worship you and, and deal with you? God, how am I dealing it? And so we want to be able to say, what's important, God? Am I lifting you up? We look at what we are. What are we doing? What are we spending? How are we living? God, are you lifted up in the way I'm living? Are you living, you know? And one of the things that is important, you know, is am I living a life that glorifies God or am I so busy in my life that I'm not honoring God? And it is easy to not honor God. It really is. God, I need to work this. Uh, my wife needs to work this, these many hours because we just have to live at this lifestyle. We have to have these things. And God's going, well, if you didn't work the extra hours, you might be able to do more for me. And this is important because I hear lots of people, I don't have time to come to, to church. I don't have time to go to Bible studies. But you look at your life and you go, how much time are you wasting? How much time are you watching on TV? And... That was one of the questions I had to ask myself because I used to be addicted to television. I'd get home and I'd watch my three or four, I was a typical American, watching my three or four hours of TV every night, except for Wednesday and Sunday night when I went to church. <laughs> but other than that, I watched my three or four hours every night of worthless garbage that flooded my mind with stuff that I shouldn't have been watching. Just not worth watching. Do what it takes to try to get your attention. And as I say, it's better for us to listen to the whisper. Then when he starts yelling in our ear, we should be listening. When he starts smacking us up outside the head with a two by four, we should be listening really and responding. If he has to go so far as to have a near-death experience or put us on our back or take something away from us, then we've gone kind of far into the... And that doesn't mean everything bad happens that is wrong and disciplined because Job is a great example of a person that God just says, let me test. Okay. But as I've said many times, if you are in the middle of a hard time, the very first thing you do is, God, am I living a sinful lifestyle and is this punishment? If it is, repent and, and turn away from it and just suffer the consequences. <laughs> if it's not, then you go, God, okay, help me learn what you're trying to teach me. Because he's trying to teach you something. And who knows what it is? <laughs> it's... It's going to be different. Even if it's the same thing, it might be different. But he's saying, this is what I want you to learn. This is what I want you to grow in. But the first step is, God, is this punishment? Okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? Just as Job should have done. You know, his friends is going, Job, this is punishment. And Job goes, no, I've been a good person. This is not punishment. I don't deserve this. But Job's problem was that he really did believe in the prosperity gospel. 
You do good and good things happen and, and bad things don't happen to good people. So God was really teaching Job a lesson through all of this as well. Satan was trying to get Job to fall. Satan was trying to make him look bad. God's trying to teach him a lesson saying, no, just because you're good does not mean you're going to get good things. Now, does that mean that good things don't usually follow obedience? Yes, usually good things follow obedience. Is where, and that's where the prosperity gospel makes itself look good. When you do good, righteous things, you usually get good results. But that is not an absolute dis, uh, commandment from God. He could just say, well, no, I'm going to let you, see, let you trust on me for a while. So we want to be careful. And our desire is when something goes wrong, God, is this punishment? Okay, God, show me what it is you're trying to teach me. Oh, God, you just want me to trust in you? Okay, help me, help me trust in you. And as I've said, when you get to the end of the rope and you can't, and you can't, uh, can't follow anything, tie a knot at the bottom of the rope and hold on to the promises, God says he is sovereign. He, nothing happens to us that without him knowing and allowing it. And all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. There's times when I've been at the bottom of the rope holding on to the, that knot, and those are the two, ver the, the two truths I'm holding on. I'm going, God, there's an awful large chasm down here, but I'm holding on to your promise. I don't understand this. I don't know why. But you've said it's going to work for good, and you are God. You, you knew this was going to happen, and I'm just going to hold on. You help me hold on, and if I slip, God, you're going to have to catch me because I'm going to fall into your hands because I'm putting my trust into you. So it's very important that we keep all that in mind. All right, we're going to close here. Uh, we made it through eight verses. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you guide and lead us as we go out. Help us to just learn to trust your word and to be obedient to your word in all that you say in your word and that we will just trust you. And thank you in your son's name. Amen.